All right, well, if you have a Bible, open up to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9, that's the third book of the Bible, if you weren't sure. Uh, And uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can read along on the screens uh, with us this morning. We'll have the scripture up there for you. So we are continuing in our series called Dwell. So we're in week two now. Uh, We're looking at how God desires to dwell among his people, with his people. So we're looking at what that looked like in the Old Testament, of course, as we study the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, But we're also looking at what that means for us today. So today we're going to be in Leviticus chapters 9 and 10. But before we dive into that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word and help us to understand it, help us to receive it today. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we get to gather as your people. Lord, this is a special honor. It is a special privilege that we worship you, that we are known by you, that we get to have a relationship with you. We get to hear from your truth and your word. So Holy Spirit, would you control us today? Would you speak to us in our hearts, through your word. Lord, would you anoint this message from your word so that we can see you, see your glory, see your holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, we spent our time in the first week of this series setting the context for the rest of the series by looking at how it fits into the greater story of the Bible, right? The bigger, <clears throat> the bigger picture. So we saw that from the very beginning of time, the earth was meant to be God's dwelling place. That's what it was created for. And humans were made to dwell with him and bear his image. So we showed you this graphic last week. This illustrates what we're talking about. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God dwelling on earth with humans in a garden. And guess what? At the very end of the Bible, we see God dwelling on earth with humans in a city. Of course, that part has yet to come to fruition. That has not happened yet. But a lot, a lot happens in between these bookends of the story of God. You see, because of sin, the human race was banished from the living, from living in the presence of God. But God in his mercy enacted a plan of redemption so people could be reconciled to him and one day live with him in this eternal city. So when we come to Leviticus, we are stepping into what is still the pretty early stages of this redemptive plan of God. We see here that God chose a group of people, the nation of Israel, to be the conduit, to be the means by which God reveals his glory and his holiness to the rest of the world. They are his representatives. They are his missionaries, you could say. So God himself kind of summarizes their role, Israel's role in the world 
in, Le- in Leviticus eleven forty five. You can see here on the screen, it says, God says, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So God makes it very clear, right? He is holy. So the people he has chosen to represent him around the earth, they must reflect his character. In other words, they must reflect his holiness. But here's the big question. How can sinful people do that? How can people who have chosen to rebel against their creator, how can they even come close to reflecting his character, his holiness? So the Israelites, we find them in Leviticus. They are encamped at Mount Sinai after, of course, being delivered from Egypt on the Sinai Peninsula. God has come down to live among them. So last week we talked about God's dwelling place known as the tabernacle. You can see an illustration of it there on the screen. This tabernacle that God commanded the Israelites to build for him, this was going to be and was his dwelling place. This was the tent that God would live in and it was in the the dead center of the Israelite camp. So all the Israelites, probably 2.5 million people, were encamped around God's tent in their tents, right? So this is where God's special, unique presence would dwell and live among them. This is where worship would happen. This is where sacrifice would happen. So here's the immediate concern then, right? If God is living in the middle of the Israelite camp, then that means, right, that means that If the holy God is going to live in the middle, nothing in the camp can be unholy. Nothing in this camp can be unclean. His holiness must permeate from the center and then transform everything around it. It can't be the other way around. In other words, uncleanness, unholiness, sinfulness cannot come from the outside inwards toward a holy God. Do you see that? Only his holiness can can come from the center and permeate everything else. You can't have sin coming towards the presence of God in the middle. So this presents a pretty great dilemma, right? Humans are sinful and they're gathered around a holy God. So the only way The only way these people could even approach this holy God was through a system of sacrifice that God himself graciously gave them. He created a system for them to be able to approach him, for them to be able to reflect his holiness. And this was all centered on this tent where God's presence dwelled the tabernacle. So that brings us to chapter nine. All right. So the first few chapters of Leviticus are lots of laws and and procedures about how to offer sacrifices to God. But the narrative really kind of picks up here. And so in chapter nine, 
the tabernacle is having its grand opening, so to speak, all right? It's the first time that sacrifice will be offered there. The worship, the first worship service, you could say, is about to begin. So here's the deal. This is a really momentous and historical day for the nation of Israel. The tabernacle is ready. The construction is complete. God has given his instructions for how to worship him. Let's go. Let's do this, right? So chapter 9, verse 5. Here we go. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And that's another phrase describing the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So on this momentous day, the glory of God is going to appear before Israel. And so Aaron, who is Moses' brother, he makes the appropriate offerings and sacrifices commanded by the Lord. And then look down at verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire, get this, look at verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, this is quite amazing. In front of everybody, holy fire from God comes out and just burns, consumes the altar, the animal who is laying on that altar. Now, this is probably a terrifying sight, right? The people fall down on their faces. It is a quite the sight to behold, but it is also great. This is terrifying and great at the same time. It's great because this means that this holy God has accepted the offering. It means that he is granting forgiveness to the sinful people for their sins. His holy wrath and judgment against sin is falling not on them, no, it's falling on the sacrificial animal who is laying in on the altar in their place. This is a pinnacle moment. This is a great moment. It's a terrifying moment. The tabernacle system of sacrifice has begun. God has made a way for sinful humans to be forgiven. So now they can live in his presence. And the only thing the people can do the only thing the people can do in response to this is shout and fall to the ground on their faces, it says, in reverence and awe, thankful, thankful that a holy God would make a way for their sins to be paid for and it didn't have to be them that paid for it. 
the sacrifice stood laid on the altar in their place. So, it's a great day for the nation of Israel. But then we get to chapter 10, verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, now these are sons of Aaron, all right? So these are Moses' nephews. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So Nadab and Abihu are priests, just like their dad, two of Aaron's sons. And they also are these ordained priests, so it's, it's their job, right? It, it is their job to offer sacrifices at the tabernacle, but, but for whatever reason, they decide to give their own version of an offering apart from the command of God. God did not command this offering. This is not a valid offering that they are bringing. They want to do their own thing, They want to do it their own way. They try to approach God, but they're approaching him on their terms, not his, which ironically shows disregard for God's holiness. And here's the consequence. Verse 2. Once again, fire. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. The holy fire of God that had just consumed the animal, which was a great thing, now consumes two of his own priests, Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu. You can only imagine after such a great spectacle, after after such a great moment of worship as the people fall down on their faces in joy and terror and holiness, they are now get up and they see Nadab and Abihu be consumed by God, by his fire. You can only imagine the horror on everyone's faces, but especially their dad, Aaron, who raised these boys to know and love The Lord, on this great day of celebration, the first worship service at the tabernacle where God lives in the middle of the Israelite camp, this happens. What is Aaron thinking as he stands there and sees his two boys laying there dead before him? Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron has nothing to say. Aaron has nothing to say. How could a great day in Israel's history go so wrong? And if we're just really candid in this room today, maybe it disturbs us a little bit that God did this. 
Maybe it disturbs us to see God doing this. Why did God burn these two men alive just for disobeying him? You know, if this unsettles you, or, or if this makes you have maybe some doubts about God, you're like, well, I never read that. I never saw that in the Bible. I didn't know God did this kind of stuff, right? That may be unsettling. It may be somewhat understandable if we are a little unsettled because maybe we don't really know what's happening. So that's what I want us to talk about for the rest of today. What just happened? What just happened? And more importantly, what does this tell us about what it takes for us to dwell with a holy God? All right, let's go. To dwell with a holy God, number one, we must have a proper understanding of God's holiness. If we're going to live with a perfectly holy God, we have to understand his holiness. So, you know, here's the thing. Listen, we love to talk about God's love. <laughs> we love to talk about God's grace. We love to sing about his love and his mercy and forgiveness. Those are all good things that we love to sing about. And let me tell you, we should. Absolutely, we should sing about God's love and mercy and grace. His grace is abundant. His love is never ending. Absolutely, we should sing and proclaim these truths, but not at the expense of ignoring his holiness. The Israelites have a lot they need to learn about who God is. But the most important thing they need to know is that God is holy. When you see, when John sees a vision of angels in heaven gathered around the throne of God in Revelation, he does not see angels gathered around the throne of God singing, loving, loving, loving is God, or gracious, gracious, gracious is God, or merciful, merciful, merciful is God. What are the angels singing? They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy first and foremost. So to say that God is holy, what does that mean? To say that God is holy means that he is set apart from the rest of his creation. He is set apart. He is infinitely greater than you and me. He is infinitely greater than his creation. There are none like him. Nobody is like our God. No thing is like our God. He is in a category of his own far beyond anything we can possibly conceive or imagine. But it also means not just his greatness, but his goodness. It means that our God is not only greater than us, he is perfectly pure. He is pure in his being. He is infinitely good in all his ways. There is no sin there is no sin, there is no darkness, there is no evil, there is no wickedness in him. And he does not tolerate sin or darkness or wickedness or evil. So what this means is that a perfectly righteous God must be separated from uncleanness. A perfectly holy and righteous, perfectly pure, good God cannot come into the presence of unholiness or uncleanness or sin or evil. It also means that he must punish sin and evil or else he is not a God of holiness. He is not a God of justice and truth. The great theologian R.C. Sproul said, 
what God does is always consistent with who God is. He always acts according to his holy character. He always acts according to his holy character. So what we see here in this story today is God acting according to his holy character and really two ways that I want to get to. You know, it's really appropriate. It's appropriate that God's holiness is represented as fire because fire can be a good thing, right? Or it can be a bad thing. Fire can warm you and comfort you, but fire can also burn you and harm you. But what's the difference? Well, it depends on how you approach it, right? Just a couple of years ago, uh, my oldest son, I think it was his third birthday party. So we're having our birthday, birthday party for Barrett and it's in the middle of COVID, right? So y'all remember this? We couldn't blow out candles on the cake. Remember that? <laughs> so, uh, so it's in the middle of COVID, you know, all the families gathered around, we're singing, we're about to sing happy birthday and Barrett's going to blow out his birthday candles. Well, somebody reminds us that we can't blow, he can't blow on the cake, right? It's COVID. And so we, we take the candle and off the cake, which was already lit and burning, just a normal birthday wax candle. And we go to put it up to him for him to blow it out. And what happens? Hot wax drips off the candle and lands on his poor little leg. <laughs> it was the saddest birthday song you've ever seen. <laughs> it was the saddest, most depressing birthday celebration you've ever seen. And so for a while there, for a while, Barrett uh, did not understand right, that fire could be a good thing, right? He didn't, he didn't that just, he wanted to totally avoid fire, right? There was a couple of birthdays after that where we didn't even do birthday candles with Barry, all right? So here's the thing, right? Fire can comfort us. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that, but fire can also harm us and burn us. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that. The difference is how we approach it. You see, the same holy fire that consumed the good offering in chapter 9 also consumed Nadab and Abihu. The same fire that accepted the one offering rejected the other. The same fire that prompted joy and worship also brought sorrow. The same holy fire of God that brought Life and forgiveness also brought judgment. You see, God's grace and forgiveness of sin, you know where that's coming from? That is flowing from his holy character. But you know what? God's justice and wrath against sin, you know where that's coming from? It is also flowing from his holy character. The two are not in contradiction. The difference as to which you receive, the comfort of God's holiness or the consuming fire of God's holiness, the difference as to which you receive is based on your holiness or lack thereof. In other words, here's a simpler way to say it. Only those who are clean before God are protected by his holiness. The unclean, the sinful will be consumed by it. R.C. Sproul, again, gives some great insight here about this in his book, The Holiness of God. It's a little lengthy, but I want to share this with you because he just explains this 
really well. Uh, He says this. He says, The task that is given to mankind in creation is to bear witness to the holiness of God, to be his image bearer. We are made to mirror and reflect the holiness of God. So here's what he says. He says, The smallest sin, the smallest, slightest sin, therefore, is an insult to God's holiness. We become false witnesses to God. I'm going to just, let's ponder this for a minute as we, as I dig further into this quote from Sproul. He says, when we sin as the image bearers of God, we're basically saying to the rest of the world, hey, this is how God is. Think about it. We're called to represent him. That is our duty. As believers, as God's children, we are called to represent his holiness. And so whenever we sin, it's as if we are saying to the world, hey, you know what? This is how God is. He says, this is how your creator behaves. When we sin, we're basically saying God is covetous. God is bitter. God is a slanderer. God is an adulterer. God is all of these things that we are doing. Now, we would never say these things verbally. But that's exactly what we portray when we commit these sins in front of other people. We're saying, hey, I belong to God, but, and I'm reflecting his holiness, so this is what he's like. When we sin, Sproul says, we not only commit treason against God, but we also do violence to each other. Sin violates people. By my sin, I hurt other human beings. I injure their person. I rob from them a precious quality of life. I crush their dreams and aspirations for happiness. When I dishonor God, I dishonor all people who bear his image. So he says, is it any wonder then that God takes sin so seriously? God must take sin seriously or else he is not God. As Sproul points out, when we think about the depth of, or I'm sorry, the death of Nadab and Abihu, he says the issue is not why does God punish sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion that we're all a part of? See, we look at what, we look at what happened to Nadab and Abihu and we think, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I want to serve a God who is going to do that to sinful people, right? But here's the thing. We all deserve that. See, that's what we always forget to remind ourselves. We focus only on what benefits us. We never ever, or we hardly ever, think about what might burn us, right? We do not think about the holiness of God and our own sin often enough. We all deserve to get what Nadab and Abihu got. We all deserve to be punished because of our sin. That is exactly what you deserve. That's exactly what I deserve. We do not deserve God's grace. What have we done? What have we done? Come to church once a month, come, you know, put a few dimes in the offering plate. What have we done to deserve God's grace? What have we done? We've done nothing to deserve God's grace. And so we must remind ourselves we don't deserve anything more than what Nadab and Abihu got themselves. Sproul says, God did not choose Israel because Israel was already holy. He chose them to make them holy. So pagan practices must be absent. Salvation for the nations was going to come out of Israel. The coming Messiah was going to come out of these people. They can't have sinfulness and unholiness infiltrating the tent of God. There's no room for approaching God in your own selfish way, for your own selfish reasons. God is completely pure and holy, 
don't dare try to make him anything less. So, of course, this is hard. This is hard for us to hear, I know. But it's necessary. This leads to a bigger question. Okay, well, this sounds like bad news for us. We all deserve the wrath of God because of our unholiness. So how do we become clean? Is there a way for us to become clean and holy before God? And that brings us to our second point, to dwell with the holy God. Number two, we must have proper sacrifice and mediation. We must have proper sacrifice and mediation. So here's a little illustration that kind of just puts it out there for you. The Israelites in the Old Testament, right, sacrifice and mediation, these two things were very important. This is the only way. This is the only way that a holy God can be approached by sinful people. We must become clean. And here's how God told them in Leviticus that they could be clean. An animal could take the punishment that they deserve. So the blood of the animal would be spilt instead of theirs. So thus paying for their sins. It paid for their lives, right? With the very thing that holds the key to life, blood. That's why blood is so important in the Old Testament, right? You know what holds your DNA? You know what tells us what you're like and and why you are the way you are? It's your blood. Life is in the blood. And so blood is a way of paying for life. So a sacrifice of blood must be made to pay for the lives of the Israelites. But not just the sacrifice, it had to be It had to be mediated. So in other words, only one who is designated by God can approach God and offer this sacrifice as a mediator between the holy God and the sinful people. And guess what? That's the priest. That was Aaron and his sons. So Michael Morales says the only way, the only way of approaching God is the way he himself has opened by revelation to Moses. That's it. You can read Leviticus 1 through 8, right? It would make a great quiet time tomorrow morning about all the rules and all the procedures and all the laws of sacrificing animals. And I'm being serious. I mean, it would really come full circle for you, right, when you think about it. So here's the, here's the thing. Why don't we do this today, though? Like, why don't we actually have an altar somewhere out there in the lobby, right? And we all bring our lambs and our goats. Why don't we sacrifice animals today? Why don't we have priests today in our Baptist church? Because here's why. Many years later, many years later, after God walked these people graciously through a system to teach them about himself, to show them the importance of holiness, the importance of being clean, many years later, God himself would come to earth as a human and change everything. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The author of Hebrews explains this so beautifully in chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus became the sacrifice that we need once and for all. In the Old Testament, day after day after day, they had to continue to slaughter an animal. Continue to slaughter an animal. Day after day after day, God was teaching this very important people that they had a very important purpose to play. He was going to come out of their lineage. He was going to be one of their descendants and he would save the world and become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Do you see the importance of approaching a holy God? He was going to do something that they could not even fathom. He was going to save the world by coming to earth himself and becoming the sacrifice, being the blood that must be shed to pay for our lives. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? How much more after Jesus has come will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, not only get this, what do we need? We must have a sacrifice. We must have a mediator. We must have both. We've already seen in here in Hebrews, Jesus is the sacrifice. Look at this, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Praise God for that. Amen? R.C. Sproul says, The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. Let me tell you what happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross the wrath of God was directed at Jesus instead of you. He was the lamb on the altar that was consumed. It consumed him instead of you. So Jesus takes fully your sin and judgment and in exchange, you know what you get? You get his perfection and his holiness. We think about the holy fire of God. We think, how can God possibly be both loving and a judge at the same time? How can he be both gracious and wrathful at the same time? These things seem contradictory. But when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, they come together beautifully, perfectly in a way that, and that's the only place where they can. We see God's wrath in full. We see God's love in full, both happening at the same time, one poured out on Christ, the other given to you. You see, in the end, in the end, the holiness of God, when you take your final breath and you stand before God, on judgment day after Christ returns, when we all stand before a holy God and approach him in his presence, when we stand there, in the end, the holiness of God will be what either brings you life forever or brings you death forever. It will be whatever comforts you forever or what condemns you forever. The difference. What's the difference? And which of those two you will receive from His holiness? Jesus Christ. The difference is Jesus. Do you belong to Him? When you stand there before God, you have nothing. 
You have nothing to give on your own accord. You have nothing to show from your track record, all the good things you've done in your life. They're never going to outweigh the bad. And even if they did outweigh the bad, they're still bad. There's still uncleanness. So we're all, we're all in trouble. <laughs> unless, unless when God looks at you, he sees Jesus standing in your place. Whether he is your sacrifice and mediator, or rather, if like Nadab and Abihu, you tried to approach God in some other way. So when we realize this, when we look at the cross and we see Jesus being consumed on the altar as our sacrifice, what should that do? It should change everything about us. It should compel us to worship and obey. And that's the third and final thing we see. To dwell with a holy God, we must have proper worship and obedience. We must, we must have proper worship and obedience. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 28. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful. That's the key word, grateful. For, for what? For everything that we've received as followers of Jesus who belong to God forever. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for what? Our God is a consuming fire. Maybe you've read that verse before and didn't really understand the last part. <laughs> Does it make sense now? Let us fall down with reverence and awe and worship for our holy God is a consuming fire. There is none like him. Gratitude. Do you have that? Do you have gratitude for what Jesus has really done for you? When you think of your past sins that bug you and nag you, and, and maybe you're irritated that I even just said that phrase, past sin, because there's so much that we try to overcome. There's so much that we try to repress in our minds. We don't want to think about all the mistakes in our lives we've ever made. But sometimes when they bubble to the surface, are we... Do we, do we wallow in self-pity? Things we've repented of, do, do we look back and wallow in self-pity and, and just beat ourselves up? Or in gratitude, do we look to the cross? Do we see, thank you, Jesus, my sin was paid for. You punished my sin on yourself so that I could know you forever. I'm forgiven do you experience that gratitude on a daily basis? Do you take time to spend with the Lord and thank him for his holiness that it comforts you in Christ? You know, think about the people's response. We can kind of compare and contrast the responses, right? The Israelites saw God's fire. They fell on their faces in worship. Nadab and Abihu saw the same thing. But their response was very different. They tried to approach God on their own terms. They tried to do life their own way. So let me ask you, how are you responding to God's holiness? What does your daily walk with the Lord look like right now? I'm not asking what you wish it looked like. I'm not asking what it looked like a couple years ago. I mean like right now in September of 2023, where do you stand with the Lord? 
in terms of your just daily fellowship with God. How are you walking with the Lord right now? Are you, are you neglecting God's word? Are you getting into the Bible? Are you, are you doing really good reading of God's word? Are you really trying to soak in his truth? Are you spending time with other Christians? Are you, are you a part of a local church? Are you really getting into the body and family of God? Are you being encouraged by all these ways, these good, gracious ways that God has given you in freedom to enjoy his presence? Are you enjoying God's holiness? Nadab and Abihu, they wanted to do their own thing in their own way. You know, it's funny, isn't it? That they, they were priests, by the way. I mean, think about it. They, they, they knew God. They had been taught to love God. And maybe even sincerely wanted to love God. They may have, they may have sincerely tried to offer this offering, but they were sincerely wrong. In the end, they were just selfish because they disregarded God's holiness and just wanted to create their own path. So don't fall into that trap. Don't try to create your own path to try to experience God or, or figure life out in your own way. No, enjoy his truth and his word. Enjoy his people. Enjoy worship. Enjoy the holiness of God as he has prescribed. After Christ has come, you see, we, the church, now we are his representatives. Me and you, really. Me and you are the representatives of Jesus Christ on this earth. That, is, that, that seems like a big burden to bear, doesn't it? But he's given us help. He's given us each other. He's given us his Holy Spirit. Think about that. If you're a Christian, you represent God's holiness in the world today, everywhere you go. The New Testament writers make this abundantly clear. So I just want to share a couple of verses with you in closing. Look at this. This is who we are. This is to you. So, so the whole sermon we've been thinking about the Israelites a couple thousand years ago, well, listen, this is you today. Peter says, as obedient children, 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 2, but you, you are a chosen race, Church, Christians today in Jacksonville, Florida, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Romans 12, we'll close with this one. Romans 12, Paul said, I appear to you therefore, brothers, I'm sorry, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When you go to work tomorrow, are you going to portray the holiness of God to the people around you? When you go to school tomorrow, are you going to portray the holiness of God to those around you? When you go home today, are you going to reflect the holiness of God to your family? Do you see the mission we've been given? It's really the same as Israel, except, boy, no kidding. Thank God we're on this side of the cross we have Jesus, we know his name. We can look back and see his great love for us. 
Are you living for God's holiness? Are you enjoying God's holiness? Are you in awe of God's holiness? Is Jesus the true and greater sacrifice and mediator? Is he standing in your place before God? Are you going to be comforted by his holiness forever or will you be condemned by his holiness forever? Listen, Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you come to him today? If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't really turned from trying to figure out life in your own way, trying to approach God on your own terms, would you turn away from that, repent of that, trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? You can do that today. If you need to speak with someone today about that, our Next Steps team will be in the lobby right after the service. Listen, we would love to talk with you about exactly what we talked about today, what it means to approach God, what it means to put your faith and your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, what it means to become a Christian. We'd love to talk with you about anything else you might want to know, what it means to become a part of this church, what it means to be baptized. Any question you have, we would love to to talk with you. You can email the church if you don't have time to stand around today. We understand. You can email us. We definitely will respond. But we want to be here for you. We want to help you think through these truths. Another good way for us to think through these truths is to ask the Lord to help us. So would, would you do that with me now? Kyle's going to close, close us out in a song, but let's pray. Let's ask the Lord, our holy God, to help us understand his holiness and live it out in our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. But the only reason we can love you is because you loved us first. So thank you. Thank you, Jesus. May our hearts be filled with gratitude, thankfulness for who you are. That you put yourself on the cross voluntarily. You laid down your life on the altar. You took the wrath of God that we deserved on yourself. You gave us your holiness. You gave us your clean record so that we can approach God. You gave us your Holy Spirit so that we can know how to live for you. So Jesus, I thank you. God, I thank you that your holiness protects us. Lord, for those of us who belong to you, we are forever protected. We are forever comforted. Lord, may that compel us to worship with reverence and awe. May that compel us to live our lives differently, not attached to the things of this world, but just loving you and gaze in awe of who you are. Show us how to do that. Show us how to do that in our homes. Show us how to do that at our work. Lord, the places we go, the things we do this week, show us. Show us how we can reflect your holiness, your love, your grace, your truth to the world around us who needs, who desperately needs to see your holiness. Lord, let us live lives of obedience joyfully, joyfully for you. For you are a consuming fire. But Lord, may we enjoy Enjoy the holiness that we've been given in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray.